This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, my goodness. What is happening to our universities? I loved going to university. It changed my life. It set me up in life. It was absolutely wonderful. And I think of a university as an institution that is picking up the academically inclined, the people that like thinking and debating ideas and concepts, and developing their ability to think critically, to grow, to learn new things, to listen to others, to self-criticize and criticize others, realizing that you're criticizing the ideas, not the person. And in so doing, setting people up for a life of learning, a life of understanding, a life of being a good citizen, and providing our country and the world with our political leaders, our business leaders, our community leaders, our scientists, our entrepreneurs, our teachers, our parents, everything. And I think of our our universities as so important. But what is happening there? Because we read in the legacy media about strange things, about people being shut down because their ideas are somehow wrong and harmful. And we hear of students getting triggered and being upset and needing safe safe spaces. And we've all had that experience, I think, of seeing bright young family members and friends, friends' children going off to universities, bright young things, and sort of becoming robotic in their views of how the world is. Well, to help us understand what's going on, we're very lucky to have back our very own Professor Elizabeth Rata. Good morning, Professor. Good morning, Rodney. Thank you for the invitation to come back and and talk. Well, your discussion on education um, had great feedback. People loved it. It was hugely insightful. And we're very excited to have you to explain to us what's happening in universities because, to be frank, it's not something most of us have much to do with. We might have gone to university once, but it's been a long time since we've been to university. But it seems to us on the outside, now you're at Auckland University, it seems to those of us on the outside, it seems so damn peculiar. What is going on in your view? Well, in your introduction, you... um captured very, very well what is actually in the um, 2020 Education Act, which talks about um, the university's principal aim is to develop intellectual independence in students. So that's in the legislation. Um, Something else in the legislation is giving academic staff and students freedom, and I quote, within the law to question and test received wisdom, to put forward new ideas, and here's here's the good one, to state controversial or unpopular opinions. So it's there in the legislation. Why isn't it happening? And 
I think we can also look to the legislation to get some understanding about what's gone wrong, because the legislation also says that university councils are to acknowledge the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. So that's one point. The second point is that um, there is a section in the Act which states Section 281 encourages the greatest possible student participation by underrepresented groups. Now, let's look at those two things. The first one, the treaty. Now, that was in 2020, and notice the word acknowledge. Well, by last year, when I had another look at the Act, I saw that the word had changed to honour, commitment. And in university policies and university strategic plans, we now see the words honour, committed, you know, to the principles of the treaty. Now, that's the central problem, that we've got uh, treatyism, as I call it, is um, New Zealand's form of, uh, of identity um, ideology or communitarianism is the term I use. And the whole retribalization movement from the 1980s has used this new revisionist treaty. I mean, it's not the treaty from 1840. It's a completely new version of the treaty that was developed by these identity ideologues, these retribalists in the 1980s to push this, the retribalizing agenda throughout all our institutions. And it was developed by some who are actually in the universities themselves. So that's why it's deep in the universities, the idea that um, the treaty has principles, the idea that the treaty is a partnership. No, it's not. It's, it's um, a version that was developed in the 1980s, and it's been a method to a very, very effective strategy to racialize New Zealand society. But this is what I don't understand, um, that in the 80s we had radicals and they were young people that had been to university, young Maori, and we had some academics who, quite frankly, we sort of looked upon as fringe academics, you know, like Ranganui Walker writing in The Listener and coming out with what I thought at the time was a very jaundiced view um, of history and of how the world worked. But somehow these ideas have landed on fertile ground my goodness, what Ranganui Walker was saying is very conservative now. It's landed on fertile ground. It's infected everything of the body politic. The university appears to be chock-a-block with it. The universities must have agreed with it going into legislation and into these documents because we've never heard of any pushback. And it's now no longer the domain of Maori studies, but biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics, economics. Professors and academics who you think 
would be rigorous scholars in the Western tradition. And yet, here we have it. How have they succumbed? Yes, that's the nub of the matter. Before I talk about that, Rodney, I want to make a really important point, and that is I don't use the term Māori and non-Māori. Um, you know, civil society, people can identify however they wish to, that freedom, that's your freedom. Um, I talk about tribalists and non-tri and other, and the tribalists are a real mixture of people. They are um, from various ethnicities, they are academics, politicians, lobbyists, activists, uh, intellectuals, a range of people who are brought together by this, um, and I think I referred to it in our last talk, but it's it's quite um, complex, so I'll refer to it again, this unholy alliance of the first thing is an intellectual movement which swept through the Western world from the 60s and got people very excited um, called postmodernism. Mm. I mean, it's died in other places, but in New Zealand it served quite a good purpose because postmodernism says there's no reality, there's no truth, there's just multiple truths, there are multiple ways of knowing. Um, whatever you decide is your truth, your reality, that's okay. That really took hold. I mean, it's it's exciting for young people. Mm. It really took hold in this country because it joined forces with another very strong intellectual and political movement, um, critical theory or Marxism. And the, critical theory has um, established itself in our universities in the social sciences and education because um, it, it promotes the idea that it's not enough to be an academic and to investigate, to argue with the evidence and, and to explain. Now, it says the purpose of intellectual work, academic work, is to transform society. So it says you must be an advocate. You must be an advocate for a position, a political position. So you've got postmodernism, which says, you know, anything goes, your truth is as good as any. Um, all truths are the same. There's no such thing as universal science. There are just the various realities and truths of different groups. Align that with um, Marxist critical theory, which says that you must use intellectual ideas to transform society, so a very powerful political message. Uh, my position is that inter um, academics should not bring their political positions into the academy, that the purpose is to you know, investigate what the world is, to explain what the world is. Well, it's that now, wonderful old distinction between is and ought. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yes. And now as well as those two powerful movements, postmodernism, Marxist critical theory, um, the other one is identity ideology. Now, that's hugely powerful. And that, when you align it with those other two forces, you can see how the combination really took off. What is identity ideology? Well, I, the other term I use for it is communitarianism. And if you look at the word community, the idea of the group, 
Compare that communitarianism on one hand with liberalism on the other. Liberalism is all about the individual. Freedom belongs to the individual. Communitarianism is what you find in societies and political systems where the group is put before the individual. If you think of China today, you think of Russia, the notion that it is the group that matters. The individual is subservient to the group. Now, New Zealand's version of, of identity ideology or communitarianism is the tribe, is retribalization. So those who wished to acquire economic resources and political power have been able to harness those three intellectual movements, bring them together in a very powerful trifecta, and that has captured our institutions. And it's, it's very done, toxic, isn't it? Oh, yes. And it's it's been so successful because it uses a variety of strategies. And one of the strategies is to um, accuse anyone who disagrees as being racist. And, that and, has, and the last thing any Kiwi wants to be is racist. Kiwis are like like most people throughout the world are fair and decent people. Um, and of course they don't want to be um labeled as racists. And you don't want to be seen with racists. No, no. Or people that could be labeled racist. It's and, a devastating attack. And and when um tribalists captured our institutions, they are not only able to accuse individuals of racism, but are able to affect their careers to stop them being promoted, for example. So it's um, with there, There's another interesting thing in here, if I may interrupt, uh, Professor. I'll, I'll call you Elizabeth. I don't mean to be disrespectful. It just helps the conversation. I've spoken to you and you said you didn't mind, but we very much understand that you're a professor. But Elizabeth, there's also this other thing, and I'm gaining an understanding of this. They sow enormous confusion. So when you're talking about postmodernism, critical theory, identity ideology, it's sort of like this lamange of thinking. And if you try and grasp it, and understand it, it sort of is like trying to pick up honey or something. It's sort of running through your fingers and you can't understand it. And when you sit down, not that you do because you can't try and talk to a person who's pontificating in this way, you can't actually discuss it because you can't get to the nub of it. It's, I don't know, it's, it's the weirdest thing. Is that really my correct in that? I like your reference to a blancmange. Makes me think of my mother making blancmange. Ah, but it's <laughs> so hard. In it's the so hard. It's so hard to grasp. Yeah, yeah. That's why I um, am unable to do interviews with mainstream media because it's impossible to do sound bites. It's impossible to talk with what two, one or two minutes. I can't do it. That's um, why I'm very grateful, you know, for mm. for you giving me time to talk because mm. it's 
you know, trying to pull the blancmange apart and then explain what's going on. It's 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 really complex. And don't these advocates of this approach they don't appear to have a good understanding of what even they're criticizing or what they're against or what they're proposing and that they use rhetorical and debating tricks to confuse, to misdirect, and to label, and even dehumanize anyone who questions them. It's like a, it's a, it's a political, psychological sort of weapon that's been unleashed on our universities and life. Is is that how you would characterize it or am I overblowing it? No, no, you're right. And what happens is that tribalists see it from their position. Critical theorists see it from theirs. Um, Postmodernists from theirs. So to grasp the overall picture and the way these three movements come together as such a powerful force um, is, I think, is difficult even for those who are promoting any of those positions to grasp themselves. Mm. They see their own interests and uh, advocate um, in different ways. For example, tribalists would say, in fact, would merge with critical theorists and saying it's all about equity. Well, of course, it's not about equity. There are many um, non-Māori who are poor. There are many Māori who are poor. There are many Māori in the professional and managerial class, many who are not Māori who are. I mean, it's not actually about equity at all. But both critical theory and tribalists promote the idea that it's all about equity. And that's one over many of the progressive left who say, yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds reasonable, that sounds fair. And because most people are fair and decent, they think, yeah, if it's about equity, um, I'll support it. But of course it's not about equity. It's about a small group acquiring enormous political power in order to acquire economic resources. That's at the root of it all. It's that calculated. It's that calculated, yes, it is. And that's why we're looking at just a small group of individuals who for the last 30 years, um, the main group is the Iwi Leaders Forum. People in the Iwi Leaders Forum have worked tirelessly and enormously effectively. You know, their strategies are second to none to achieve the, um, the mandate for the transformation of New Zealand society. And the mandate is the Treaty of Waitangi to insist mm. on the revisionist contemporary version of the treaty being the authority for... Um, now, when I talk about tribalism, I don't mean people identifying with their tribe in civil society. I mean the tribe as a political category. That's yes. a really important distinction. I yes. am not opposed in any way to people identifying with any sort of heritage group. 
I mean, it's something mm. we all like to do, you know, to think about our ancestors. Yeah, Scottish clan. Where and, I you know, cultural practices of our ancestors. But it's, it gives us great psychological security and social, you know, sense of belonging. Absolutely fine. That's civil society. When I talk about tribalism, I am talking about strategies to put another political category into our democratic system. So to replace the political category of the citizen. Liberal democracy, there is one political category. That is the individual citizen. That's the person who holds the rights. That's the person to whom the government is accountable. That's the political category of democracy. Now, if you bring in another political category of um, people who, who whose rights are based on, um, say, heritage or on any other um, categorizing principle, then you under, you don't just undermine actually, you destroy, you destroy the it. political category of the individual citizen. So mm. what we're looking at is extremely serious. Because you can't have a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. No, you can't. You can certainly have a vibrant society where you yes. have, you know, um, all sorts of uh, iwi activity, all sorts of group activity, a vibrant culture out in civil society. But mm. when it comes to the government, it comes to our institutions and the law, then there is only one political category, the individual citizen. And that's where our politics lets us down because particularly I've observed in New Zealand politics, we tend to think the truth is just in the middle. Right? <laughs> and we don't have a principle guiding us. And so step by step, we have allowed what you described quite brilliantly as this retribalization because do you think, oh, well, we'll put in this Education 2020 Act, the principles of the treaty. And not only will we um, acknowledge them, we'll honour them. And to a politician, that's sort of meeting everyone halfway. But in meeting everyone halfway, you completely change the makeup and political constitution of New Zealand, and it's happened everywhere. And what, what's going on, you're absolutely right in taking it back to the basic principle. Now, the idea of liberal democracy of the individual citizen is based on the principle of universalism, not mm -hmm. that we are divided um, into various groups, for example, a race group. No, universalism means we are all human beings before mm. we are anything else. Mm -hmm. And it's the principle of universalism that should, that is the basis of democracy. And you, if you start to um, undermine that, if you start to do white and that, then that's it. Um, now, and the peculiar, just to jump in there, the peculiar aspect of that Elizabeth, is that the original treaty, as agreed in 1840, was based upon that. That's its entire point, mm -hmm. that we're not going to live as groups of people. 
we're going to live as citizens universally under the rule of law. And funnily enough, that treaty has been used now on a modern interpretation to destroy that very thing. Mm. Is that fair? That is. And of course, universalism, the idea that there is a human being, is a very modern idea. I mean, up until about 300 years ago, the idea was that you were a member of your group before you were anything else, you know, a member of a religion, a yes. member of, you were um, part of an empire under the rule of the emperor. Um, you know, people saw themselves as fundamentally belonging to a group. And a the great change which really makes us modern is that we started we we saw ourselves know as universal human beings and demanded a political system that mm. recognized that mm. and of course this is Karl Popper's to me his great the work that affected me very deeply growing up the open society and its enemies and of course what you where you're describing is a closed society where you owe your allegiance to the group, uh, to the tribe, to the class, to the religion, your ideas and thinking are described by the group and you can't think outside the group. And those who are outside the group are enemies and are best destroyed. Yeah. That's the real danger, isn't it? Because it, as soon as you have a closed group, then you have people who don't belong to it. And yes. that's how enemies are created. You're not one of us. No. You know, therefore, we can do what we want to you. And that's a beautiful thing of universalism because you recognize everyone as a human being. Yeah, that's right. And she's, I mean, just look at the word university. Mm -hmm. A university is a place for. Um, ideas that have come from everywhere, um, maths, you know, from mm. from India, um, you know, these ideas don't belong. Although um, they're often referred to as Western, that's probably because the Enlightenment was so pivotal at mm. this period of modernity and promoted these ideas. But they come from come from everywhere. Um, yeah, I don't use the term Western because I think that that creates an idea that they belong to a certain group. But That's I think right. we understand that it was in the West that uh, because of the political system, which was um, increasingly democratic, many of these ideas were able to flourish. I'm appreciating listening to you that you've not only given it a great deal of thought, but you've taken great care about the words that are used because the what we're up against are very potent use of words mm -hmm. and you correctly pulled me up because I've become trapped in using the phrase Maori versus non-Maori right yeah. and in doing that I've completely bought in to my opponent's argument. Oh, Rodney, yeah. yeah. Haven't I? You're... Because it's not yeah, a eth it's have. not a it's not an ethnic thing. And your phrase, tribalist versus non-tribalist, gets it back 
to universal principles because the human is making a choice. I don't have a choice whether I marry or not marry, but I have a choice about whether I'm a tribalist or a universalist, I guess the phrase is, or an open society person who believes in living in an open society. And that's the argument. Likewise, we use the shorthand Western tradition, Western civilization. That's used against us, that shorthand, because it can be used to suggest that you're being derogatory of other ethnic groups and origins, other civilizations, other ways of living, and you're not. It's just a shorthand phrase. And so you're very, very good as you have to be because what we're realizing is it's this use of words and terms that have become so powerful and emotive um, and divisive. Gosh, you've captured it so well, Rodney. I think it was worthwhile talking a bit more about this language, language used as a strategy of division. And I like tribalists and universalists. Universalists is a really good term. I mean, non-tribalist doesn't actually mean anything. So yeah. I think universalist is actually the, the, the term I, I might start using more. And tribalist, um, although in New Zealand it applies to a particular political um, movement, um, it captures the idea of the group mm. being put um, ahead of of all others in terms of of the political category. We knew one of the things that has become apparent from outside the university looking in is this extraordinary shutdown of free speech. And we pick up on it dimly by seeing famously Don Brash being disinvited <laughs> from Massey University, which is extraordinary if it was anyone who was going to give a speech, because I'm like a free speech absolutist. You know, I like bad ideas get rooted out by hearing them not by driving them underground in my conception. But Don Brash was Reserve Bank governor and leader of the National Party, so you can't get more mainstream in a funny way than that. I would have the fringe being invited to the university, if you know what I mean. But this was the mainstream being excluded. And we also learn of academics being condemned officially, but more powerfully condemned by their peers for what can only be termed wrong think. How has that come about? Well, I think it's come about because those three intellectual movements I um, spoke about at first have taken over the academy. So people who promote those ideas are now have now 
managed to alter policies and practices within the university. And the strategy used is either is called either decolonization or indigenization. Indigenization is now the, the more popular term. So all our universities are indigenizing at great speed. This should be of huge concern to all of us because they are public universities. They are our universities. So they are indigenizing, which means that the treaty um, is, is put into all policies and practices in the university, and we are required to honor the treaty. The second strategy used is to put Matauranga Māori or traditional beliefs with into the curriculum. Now that is different from where they should be. Matauranga Māori, like any traditional beliefs, um, should be in something we study about, you know, in anthropology mm. or in mm. history or in literature. So in literature, of course, the great myths of the world. Yes, we do need to study those, but we need to study about Matauranga Māori. But the strategy is to put Matauranga Māori as a belief system to inculcate our students and staff into a belief system and putting the belief system into the university. Now, you can't do that because a university is about... Um, investigating everything and this is just this is just you can't be a little bit right you're yeah, one right. or the yes, other yes yeah beliefs belong in civil society you know you it might yeah. be your religion it might be the cultural um group um to which you belong and they're your beliefs they're part of the cultural beliefs and practices of your social group but the university and our government institutions as well they are quite different you don't bring your beliefs in there. You know, there are, uh, it's based on universalism. And I would, I, I think that what must happen if we are going to um, rescue our universities, because our international reputation is at stake, no doubt about that, it's at stake. Other country, other universities are looking on us and thinking, what is going on in New Zealand? and talking about it. So in order to rescue our universities, uh, the university leaders must remove the idea that we have to honour the treaty from the university. If you wish to, in your private capacity, honour the treaty, that is your right. But the university as an institution does not need, must not, align itself to promoting any ideology. And treatyism is an ideology like any other. And the idea that um, people in the university need to promote and to believe in Matauranga Māori or traditional beliefs, uh, that also must be removed. And I would ask our university leaders to, to move on this, to do it, before any more damage is done. There are bad actors here, aren't there? There are, yes. It, there are there are people who have um, promoted 
these ideas for 30, 40 years mm. and who are now in positions of considerable power. So that is why it is very difficult for especially younger academics to speak out, hence my request to university leaders to mm. take the lead in this. For students too, what I've observed, like I notice it with um, journalists and their writing. I don't interact with journalists now, but um, I notice in their writing. I notice it with um, our young political leadership when they pontificate. And I notice it directly with school teachers at my children's schools. And you're getting this wave and wave and wave of postmodernism, critical theory, tribalism just spewed out, you know, in every email every communication, lovely teachers, lovely principal, out it comes, right? And I don't think of them as bad actors. I think of them as going with the flow and, quite frankly, lazy. Because my observation of trying to make sense of the world as a critical scientist against the data is hard work <laughs> and it's messy and you can't you're not clever enough to see what's going on but you go off to university now or you take the latest bump from the ministry or from the university hierarchy life is so easy because you have all the answers it's here and out it goes. And as long as you don't deviate, you're safe. And so I think there's also this intellectual, political laziness that has allowed these bad actors to assume extraordinary significance and actually take over, and I'm going to say this advisedly, our country. Because that's what I get at my local little school. Yeah. Yes. Well, the idea that, um, you know, it seems to me that there are many people who haven't grasped that the this idea that the treaty has is a partnership with principles only goes back to 1987. Yes. And there are many people who don't know that, who, who claim and this includes journalists who claim that the original treaty was a partnership. But I would say it doesn't actually matter what the original treaty said. Mm -hmm. The treaty right. is a historical document. You know, we've moved on. Yes. Other things that happened in 1840, we don't stick to those no. either. No. Um, no, we, we don't. We, we, yeah. we, and and um, there are values that allow us to live in a culturally, ethnically, religiously diverse society and all get along. And they're the universalist values. And the tribalist values are the values that pit 
one group against another group. And inherent in this is this idea that the two groups can't communicate, that they can't debate, that they can't discuss, that they can't reach the truth or justice or reasonable conclusion, that the groups themselves are antithetical. And that's why we are seeing it heading to you can't speak here. And the next step is violence. And I know I'm jumping around, but you've got me thinking about this, Elizabeth. That was what was so significant about the JDK Keane, the Posey Parker, was we thought both the deplatforming and the rise of violence because of this ideology that two groups can't talk. That my, I think like I do because I'm an old white man. And, and that's, that's very much postmodernism. That's postmodernism's contribution to the trifecta, the idea yes. that how you think, your very being, what you do, is the result of who you are, and who you are is a member of a group mm. rather than this you know, universal person. And um, easily dismissed without having to answer the critique. That's right. And those words are in the refreshed curriculum. This notion that there are diverse ways of knowing, being, and doing, that is in the that is the basis of the refreshed curriculum. It is straight postmodernism and it serves both critical theory and it serves tribalism. It's really dangerous. Now I was um a, several other colleagues wrote to Chris Hipkins um, in February and said, and it was an open letter, um, and said, this has happened, this is what's going on, um, Mr. Hipkins, and it's happened on your watch. What can, you know, th this is what we, we recommend you do. Take the, take the treaty, take the principles of the treaty out of education legislation and go back to having subjects and taught in schools and um you know this basis in universalism that i've spoken about well i didn't hear i didn't get a reply from him except an acknowledgement of, of recent but because it has happened on his watch since um 2017 in particular it's been quick hasn't it it's, it's been, been quick. very very quick well the ideas as you say, go back to the 80s. Mm -hmm. But the grasp of legislative intent so that your university agitators can point, oh, no, we can't have Don Brash speaking at the university because we have to honour the treaty. Now, Don Brash will say, but I am honouring the treaty, right? <laughs> no, 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 because we interpret the treaty this way, which is the true way. And this is this is as old as time itself. It is Catholics fighting Protestants over nothing. 
That's it's right. And that's, that's what we're in danger of doing, of having groups that are so completely divided and divided in terms of how the past is interpreted that there is no way going forward together. There's one other point I want to make, Rodney, and that is the um, people who are now in charge of the universities are the people who have come through this this trifecta of ideas. Um, and for some of them, they are now in a position to put into effect the ideas that they um, have developed in their PhDs, in their masters, and their doctoral dissertations. So their time has come, actually, and, and yeah. they are moving fast. The odd thing to appreciate, too, Elizabeth, speaking with you, and I mean, we're, we're sort of we're having a wonderful conversation and we're exploring it in a way that I've never done before because until recently I'd always shied away from the debate because I've never enjoyed sociology and I've never enjoyed um, trying to understand these complex terms and phrases because to me it was sort of, looking at how many angels sort of dance on a pin. Um, and I was more interested in hard and fast data, if you know what I mean. And this stuff has bubbled away and is now biting us all in the proverbial backside. It's legislated for, they're in power, they're in control. And so as you and I are discussing this, it's sort of things are firing off in my brain, and I apologize for that. But one of the interesting things that occurs to me is that I'm reminded of having this explained, that we have been living in terms of human civilization in the exception, not the rule. That is to say, living with universal principles where the individual human being is valued and respected and is seen as the locus of morals and thought and should be under the same set of rules as every other human being, that is the absolute, in terms of our time on earth, that is the merest moment. And the great mass of time that humans have been, we've been warring factions and tribes who don't understand each other. That's why group, you know, the group is so seductive. Yes, and, we're reaching back to our past. Yes, what we need to know is we can have both. And in the I've, I've spoken about it as the idea of partial loyalty. Yeah. We can be within our group, in civil society, in our families, and be totally loyal, you know, be yes. absolutely committed. That's our identity. Partial loyalty means that then we have the public space, the modern public space, modern institutions, and that's where we are a different type of person. We mm. are that individual who has, and if you think of the word authority, the author of oneself, it's quite mm. a powerful idea. Mm. So we are the authors of ourselves. We can decide to be totally loyal to our group, in civil society, in our private, the private sphere, but then when it comes to the public sphere, that's where we are a universal human being. 
speaking with someone like Chris Hipkins, whom I don't really know, because he was just a young MP um, when I was going out the door, but I can guess a lot about him and have suppositions. And I imagine he's done a BA in politics or something, you know, ridiculous, and um, is pumped up with this ideology surrounded by advisors of the ideology who believe they're on the right side of history and they remind me of the Red Guards. Um, they remind me of the Jacobites and the French Revolution. They remind me of religious zealots who are going about, you know, saving the world or Pol Pot Year Zero. These are the extreme examples from history, but their zealotry and their dismissal of any criticism without the need to even answer to it. So you write a letter to them, and we know exactly what will go on in his head if he did read it, which is, oh, no, Prof Rata, oh, yeah, old girl at the university, you know, they'll all die out soon. Um, we're, we're what's coming, you know. She's schooled in the old ways. They feel no need to engage. And because you can't engage with them, and they've got power, well, there's no recourse. There's no way forward. There's no right. yeah. there's no ability. You have no, how do you, have you got advice for us? I mean, here we are talking, and you can imagine if a wokester or a postmodernist or a tribalist or a critical theorist or an identity ideologue or one with the whole trifecta was listening, I'd just be um, thumping their head on the table, listen to those two people talk. Oh, I can't believe it. I'm going to go on Twitter and say how outraged and offended I am. Oh, I'm going to have to run off to a safe space. They're not going to engage with us. So we can't reach them. Yeah. Yes, it's... It's extreme. It really is serious because of that. The division is now so great. Um, and there's a, this block wall. Um, I gave a speech yesterday to a group who asked a similar question. You know, what can we do? Um, some of them were people who, who were, some were lawyers. And I said, you know, you you just must all speak out. You must you you must keep talking. You must not be silenced. Um, look at what's going on with the law society at the moment. The idea that the law I society know. is going to bring in commitment to the treaty. Well, I know. Um, I mean that's that, that commitment to the treaty is now in our um, government institutions. Now it's moving into the institutions and civil society. We must take it out. Those who are still, who still have influence, who still are in positions, must resist. Um, you know, With all every fibre of our being. Absolutely. I mean, my I see my task as explaining. I've mm. been researching this for four decades. I understand what's going on. So up until recently, I've actually said no to invitations because I don't like 
<laughs> Sorry, Rodney. <laughs> I'm not. It's it's not easy for me to give no, speeches to do interviews and so on. But I've realised that because I have these decades where I've investigated this issue, I'm I'm in a position to explain it, and I feel it's my duty to explain. Now that's quite different from a critic and conscious conscience position where I want to promote my own politics. No, I'm not doing that. No. I'm explaining what. I have researched um, using argument and using the evidence that is in all, all my academic work, which is recognised internationally. So I feel in a position to be able to say these things. And that's what a university professor's job is. Yes, it is. <laughs> But I everyone mean, else, everyone else also has a role. We all do. We yes. are individual citizens. And as citizens, yes. if we value the political system of democracy, then we must speak for it. We must, you know. <laughs> you must appreciate, though, for the likes of me and our listeners, how bewildering it is. Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. And how maddeningly frustrating it is, how hard it is to understand why people in authority and clever people who are credentialed can speak and advocate such rot. And if we say anything, we're dismissed as Archie Bunker or, you know, a Nazi on the flimsiest of things. And we feel, I'm speaking for myself, we feel insulted and abused at every turn to the point where we feel, again, I'm speaking for myself, where I feel everything has become so politically, ideologically driven that the smallest thing will, to coin their phrase, trigger me. So even reading in the newspaper, Aotearoa this, or having to f try and figure out what some government department is because it's now got a Maori name, just drives me nuts because I feel marginalized, dismissed, and every value that I hold near and dear as providing for a peaceful, prosperous society that we once had has been lost. Yeah. I think it would be really interesting to look at the um, the doctoral and master's dissertations, the theses done by those in our ministries. Say, look, take the Ministry of Education. I I think that many people in the ministry would have done a PhD thesis with a strong postmodern flavour. Um, 
you know, I might be proved wrong, but I think that is the I case. And we have people throughout our institutions who believe that there is no such thing as um, universal um, scientific methods um, who reject universalism while enjoying the fruits of mm. what 200 years of universalism. Mm. And as well as rejecting universalism, they reject the notion of progress and development. Now, that two words you don't hear often now. And yet, it, it's almost as though those terms progress and development, we need to rescue them as part of our language. Because what they have been sullied by being associated with um, the destruction of the environment. Well, hang on, progress and development are also associated with the fact that we now live, um, you know, to an old age instead of, you know, in, mm. in our early 30s, mm. um, that we have good health, that we live that we live a life that was only available to the, the, the most powerful people in the past. So, you know, progress and development, they, they would be two words that I would, um, I think, need rescuing and need using quite a lot. Mm. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're having this, another amazing tour de force with Professor Elizabeth Rata uh, about, well, what gets cast around as wokeism, but it's much deeper than that, and we're all struggling to understand it. Prof. Rata has spent 40 years studying it. Now, Professor, do you come yourself under threat? Like, are students rude to you? And do you, do you get a rudeness hurled at you because you're speaking out? <laughs> um, I don't think about that. I um I I'm so deeply um interested in ideas and in the ideas that I work with. They tend to block out <laughs> oh, good. block out these other things. And you know, in the end, you just have to um you you, you have to live a principled life. Good and, for you. And that's what I, I, I try to do. I um had a student in 1989 call me a Nazi because I was advocating for freedom. And we had a Mount Pellerin conference in Christchurch in 1989, and one of my students turned up as a protester. He went on to marry a Green Minister of the Crown. So they're a perfect pair. And I was so shocked to be called a Nazi because I didn't know of anything more abhorrent. I wouldn't call anyone a Nazi ever. And I couldn't imagine being so confused about the world that someone who stood up for individual freedom could be equated as a Nazi. Since that time, I have been called all manner of things. And it it it, it does trouble me. But I realize now it's just it's just 
a weapon. It, it, it's it's you get called a um, anti-vaxxer, a racist, a transphobe, a, a climate denier, uh, anti These these phrases, dinosaur, uh, cis cis white man, all these things are designed to dehumanize, to dismiss, to reject, and shut up. And that's all part of this opposition of free speech. Yeah. Um, and this bubbling violence, because you and I both know that if we can't talk about every every idea in our head, and debate ideas, then how do you decide how you're going to live and run a society? Well, you can only decide by who's got the guns, who's in power. And those that are out of power get told and aren't part of it. And this is why what you're doing is so important because it's never too late it can always be rescued, but it actually starts by hearing you speak because you explain it for us, you put it into context for us, you explain where it's come from, you explain how it's got to a position of power and influence, and in doing that, you open up for what we have to do. And the key thing is to be like you, to speak up. So I feel very blessed that you're in our country, Elizabeth. Um, and I feel very blessed that you come on our show. I would have you on every day for three hours just talking because it is so wonderfully enriching and enlightening. Um, but I do hope you'll come back. I'd love to, Rodney. It's, 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 you know, can I just finish with making the comment that if Please. we look at civil society, actually, the reality is pretty good. You know, you think of all our families made up of people from all sorts of backgrounds, mm. all sorts of ethnicities, all within one family. We must not let the division occur in society, especially not within our families. So there's a lot at stake, mm. but it's worth, you know, it's worth speaking up for. What a wonderful reminder. Look at your family, look at your neighbourhood. What a wonderful and great country. Let's preserve it. Let's keep it. Uh, that was Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We had the wonderful Prof. Elizabeth Rata, what a national treasure she is, and what a brave person, because she doesn't have to speak out like this, but I imagine if you understand what's at stake, whether our children's children are going to live in a free and open society or a closed and nasty one, you've got no option. Send us a text, 2057, send me an email, inbox at Reality Check Radio, it's been wonderful to have you along. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.